Well, good afternoon to all of you. It's good to be back here with you in Charlotte. Actually, I've been here for the last three or four weeks, and the requests to sign the guest book have diminished. Appreciated the special music. And I do have a comment on the announcements that, um, you know, Americans are very direct. You know, we've had a lousy day today, miserable day, rainy, messy. But, you know, in the U.K., they have a way of saying things over there in a little bit different way in England and Scotland and Ireland. They have miserable weather, too, but when they get a day like today, they say it's a soft day. <laughs> it's a soft day, the mist and the rain, and they have it all the time, so they've got to be more optimistic. <laughs> <clears throat> it's, it's good to be here. Um, about three or four weeks ago, Mr. Hernandez and I had a chance to spend the Sabbath in Mexico City with uh, about 125 brethren there. And believe it or not, we actually have the largest uh, Church of God congregation in Mexico City with about 125 people. Uh, it was a very encouraging day. Mexico City is one of the largest cities on the face of the earth. I think in the top ten, maybe about seven or eight, something like that. The almanac I had, which was about ten years old, said that uh, the population at that time was eight million people. Uh, <clears throat> and there's probably a good bit more than that right now. We had a chance to uh, drive around the city a little bit on Sunday. It was actually Christmas Day. Uh, there was not very much traffic <clears throat> that particular day, but there was still a lot of smog. We drove around with uh, another couple there, <clears throat> our host couple in Mexico City. And when we got back to the hotel, we'd been walking around looking at things for about five or six or seven hours. Both Mr. Hernandez and I both had a splitting headache just from breathing the smog that was there. You know, the, <clears throat> the Yamanacs say that... Um, Mexico is a nominally Roman Catholic country. Uh, they've got some native ideas mixed in with the Catholic religion. But it's about 97% Catholic. As we drove around the city, we saw a lot of cathedrals. We went to one of the cathedrals, I believe, was the uh, Cathedral of the uh, Virgin of Guadalupe. It's a big old cathedral built <clears throat> probably back in the 1500s. And they've had an earthquake, and the whole building is kind of tilted a little bit. And then they've built a more modern structure right next to it. There's a great big plaza around it. So we're there on Christmas Day, and they were having a, a service in the, uh, the dome-shaped structure. And the people that were in the service were participating in the service. There were a lot of tourists there walking in and out around the back. But I noticed several people that were... I guess doing some penance or something, but they were crawling on their knees across this big cobblestone plaza. And one fellow, probably in his 40s or 50s, he was carrying a statue of the Virgin in one hand, or one arm, and a bouquet of flowers in the other. And he just had this agonizing expression on his face because he'd been crawling the whole way across this place. It must have been 50 or 100 yards long on these cobblestone streets. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Hernandez and I were in Fatima probably seven or eight years ago where some shepherd kids saw supposedly the Virgin Mary. And we saw the same thing there, people crawling around on their knees around an altar uh, to show God that they, you know, that they loved him. And I just happened to think of Paul's experience when he was in Athens. And he says his spirit was stirred, angered, 
uh, inside of him when he saw a city that was filled with idols. And I think uh, we had the same experience there when you just want to say, look, you don't have to do this. There is a better way. There is a better way. But the Bible tells us that Satan has deceived the whole world. And we were there watching some of these things. But we had a chance to spend uh, the Sabbath with about 125 brethren. After the Sabbath, we had a little ho- a dinner in the hotel. And then when the sun went down, they got a mariachi band <laughs> that came in. And Mr. Hernandez started singing. And a couple of other people uh, had songs that they sang. So it was a very lively group. Uh, <clears throat> the next day on Monday, we flew down to Guatemala where we were able to attend a summer camp for the young people. I had about 30 young people from Mexico and uh, different parts of Central America. And it was very, it was exciting uh, watching uh, a Bible study that they did. And these young people got up and were very confidently answering questions about the Bible and asking questions about the Bible. Uh, It was very encouraging. Guatemala, for those of you thinking about going to Costa Rica for the feast, uh, it's not too far away. But Guatemala has about 38 volcanoes, three of which we could see and one of which smoke was coming out near the camp. So I hope you enjoy the feast. (laughs) No, it was kind of exciting. Uh, It was kind of a mountainous country, but the flat areas... uh, Towards the ocean, they raised sugar cane and rubber trees and coffee and corn and a number of other things. Uh, They even raised gorillas with rifles. (laughs) We stopped at a roadside restaurant uh, on our way to the airport, and there were a couple of guys standing kind of off in the corner uh, under the trees, but they had uh, pistol grip shotguns, and they were there to just kind of protect everybody. So it's interesting what you get into once you get outside the U.S. We also had a little ministerial conference or a conference for the ministers and some deacons and other leaders there from Mexico and Central America. Mr. Armando Urrego and his wife came up from uh, Colombia. But we had three days of uh, meetings in the afternoon for about an hour or two. And again, that was just very encouraging to see the focus and the dedication of the people there. You know, as I look around the audience, I see children, I see young people, I see adults, I see honored senior citizens. And I think as we kind of contemplate who is in the audience, we have people who have lived most of their life. But we also have people who have most of their life yet to live. And there's a lot that we can learn from each other. I know there's a lot that many of the adults would like to share. But there's also a lot that young people could learn if they have eyes to see and if they have ears to hear. When I was pastoring, I believe it was in Arizona, I asked the men in the spokesman's club to, I said, I'd like to hear some speeches that you built around lessons that you've learned in your life. Build some speeches around lessons that you've learned in your life that you could share with other members of the club. And I listened, and I listened, and I listened for a whole year, and I didn't hear a lot of speeches. 
about lessons that had been learned in life, which I thought was kind of a shame. Because, you know, we don't get these gray hairs for nothing. <laughs> you know, we make some bad decisions, we learn some lessons, but hopefully we can learn in a way that we can then share those lessons with others. <clears throat> and if we're a young person wanting to succeed in life, if we've got ears to hear, we're, we're listening, we want to learn, we want to grow, we're going to have a a tremendous opportunity if we do that. I'd like to share a little story with you before we get into the sermon. It just talks about the different perspectives that we have actually as we age. You know, there's an old German saying that we get so soon old and so late smart. In other words, we, we have to learn some of the same lessons that others have learned before us. I saw this on the internet recently. It's entitled, The Ramblings of a Retired Mind. <laughs> the Ramblings of a Retired Mind. What people think about as they get older. You know, as young people, we want to get ahead in life, and we want to have the latest styles and the latest gadgets and, and have the biggest successes and so on. And as we get older, we begin to realize those things really don't mean that much in the long run. They really don't mean that much. Also, as we get older, we don't want to spend as much money as we used to. But listen to some of these things. I thought they were interesting. Picture here is an older gentleman kind of sucking on a pipe and rolled up newspaper in his arm, and he's just thinking and cogitating. He said, I was thinking about how the status symbol of today is those, those cell phones that people clip on their belt. He said, I can't afford a cell phone, so I, I'm wearing my garage door opener. <laughs> I also made a cover for my hearing aid. And now I have one of those things, I, I think they call it a Bluetooth. <laughs> so, you know, I spent a fortune through life on deodorant before I realized that people didn't like me anyways. <laughs> But I was thinking about old age, and I decided that old age is when you still have something on the ball, you're just too tired to bounce it. <clears throat> A couple of other ones. I've gotten that dreaded furniture disease. That's when your chest is falling into your drawers. <laughs> Employment application blanks are always ask. Uh, Who's to be notified in the case of emergency? I just put a good doctor. <laughs> and finally, says, I was thinking about how people seem to read the Bible a lot more as they get older. Then it dawned on me why. They're cramming for their final exam. <clears throat> I want to talk about exams today for a little bit. We'll get to that in a little bit later. But you know, one of the the ironies, or one of the tragedies, I guess we could say, of life, is that many people, and I think many of us can identify with this, many people <clears throat> spend most of their life climbing a ladder, only to find out later in life the ladder was against the wrong wall. And they were striving after things that really don't make that much difference whenever you get towards the end of your life. 
Many people pursue goals that when they get those goals, they find out this is not what I thought it was going to be. They get a big car, a big house, maybe wind up in top positions, even maybe get married and have a family. But if they don't have the right perspective, then it really doesn't make that much difference. They get there and they find out this is all kind of empty. As Solomon talks about, it's been a striving after wind. We get there and realize it's not what I thought it was going to be. One of the problems is that many people today and have down through the ages focused on physical things. Physical things. And yet there's a spiritual dimension to life. A spiritual dimension that has to do with the purpose of life has to do with the plan of God. It has to do with a way of life that works. You know, Jesus talked about in Matthew chapter 7. You don't need to turn there, but he talks about two different ways of life. A broad, wide way that everybody goes. Whether it was Alexander the Great, whether it was the pharaohs of Egypt, whether it's peoples today. It's the way that the world goes. And it really doesn't work in the long run. But he says there's a narrow way, a more challenging way, a more difficult way. And you'll take some shots. And you'll have some difficulties, some trials, as we heard in the sermonette, if you go that way. But he says that way leads to life. It leads to eternal life. It leads to God's kingdom. But the world doesn't understand that. Brethren, you and I have been called to to see something different. To see a perspective that the world doesn't see today. Jesus came preaching a gospel of the kingdom of God. Not the kingdoms of this world, but a coming kingdom that's going to last forever. That's literally going to change the world. That was his message. In Mark chapter 10... A young man comes to Christ. <clears throat> the other uh, chapters talk about, and the other uh, Gospels talk about, he was rich, and he was a ruler. So he was a young person, full of energy. He was rich, and with riches comes security, many people think, position. But here was a person that kind of had it together. A young person, an aggressive person, had it together. He was rich. He had a position. He had heard this gospel about a kingdom of God. He didn't have that. It was another dimension. It was something he didn't have, but he was hoping to achieve. He comes to Christ, and it mentions here in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17. Now, as he was going out on the road, that is Christ, one came running and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what shall I do, or what can I do, that I may inherit eternal life? He was talking about eternal life, being in the kingdom of God. What, what can I do? And Jesus said, Why do you call me good? There's none good but God. Uh, you know the commandments. Uh, don't uh, <clears throat> commit adultery, don't murder, and so on. And the young fellow says, Look, I've done those. I've done those since I've been a young person, a young boy. But notice Jesus' response. Jesus looked at him and says Jesus loved him. 
Jesus was attracted to him. Look, <laughs> you're a fine young man. I like your attitude, uh, your, your desire. You want to be in the kingdom of God. This is it the one thing that you lack? He says, go sell what you have and give to the poor. Now, Jesus was not telling him, you have to go be a, you know, be a monk and be a hermit, live on an island all by yourself and give everything away. He realized this young man trusted in his riches. He was satisfied with his position. He said, you need to be willing to give that up. But you notice the young fellow's response. He says, let's just finish the verse there. He says, go sell what you have. And notice Jesus mentions about five things here. He says, keep the commandments. Sell what you have, give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me, and take up your cross. In other words, there's a cost. It's, you don't just fall into the kingdom of God. You know, just because you're sitting here in church doesn't mean that you can just kind of drift into the kingdom of God. I was talking with an individual not too long ago. <clears throat> And his comment was, you know, the organization that I'm part of has plenty of money. It looks like we can just coast into the kingdom of God. The Bible doesn't say that. It talks about enduring to the end. Jesus said, here, you've got to do some things. You've got to do some things if you want to wind up in the kingdom of God. Take up your cross. The various people have various crosses to bear. We all do. But he said, you've got to be willing to do that. But notice the young man's response, verse 22. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful because he had great possessions. He looked at what it was going to cost. And he thought, I, I can't do that. It's going to be too hard. But again, he was looking at the physical. He wasn't looking down the road at the spiritual. He wasn't looking at the reward. He was looking at the cost. You know, we've got to focus on the big picture. We've got to focus on what the ultimate reward is. You know, when I was, <clears throat> I think, in, in college or graduate school, a young man by the name of Mark Spitz was swimming in the Olympics for the United States. He won seven gold medals. Seven gold medals. And I think somebody asked him when he got out of the pool winning his last and seventh gold medal, they said, were you going to come back for the, the next Olympics? He said, no, I'm done. <laughs> I'm done. It's been too hard. And he went on to try and make movies and I don't know what he's doing today. But he worked hard to get those seven gold medals. And he said, I'm done. I've had it. That's enough. You know, he quit swimming. We've been called to be in the kingdom of God. There's a cost that we're going to have to pay. It's going to be a challenge. And if we focus on, oh, I've got to give this up and give that up, Friday night football games and proms and, you know, the, uh, an advancement at work or whatever, if we're not willing to give those things up, then we're not going to be in the kingdom of God, and it's all for naught. But if we can focus on the big picture, 
focus on setting some spiritual priorities and not let those get in the way of the physical priorities of this life. But this was Jesus' advice to a young man that, that Jesus cared for. He said he loved him. He liked this guy. He liked his attitude. But the young man said, it's, it's going to be too much. I can't do that. He was attracted to the message, but he was unwilling to pay the cost. Let's turn to one other scripture before we actually get into the sermon. You know, this was Jesus' teaching, but we find Peter picking up the same theme in Second Peter chapter 1. <clears throat> and brethren, I think we understand that the words in the Bible are there for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the earth have come. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. These have been recorded for us so that we can learn from these things. Peter is writing to <clears throat> an audience. Let's just read down through here for several verses because he parallels the, the uh, writings of Paul. Simon Peter, the bondservant, the slave, and the apostle of Jesus Christ. He didn't find anything bad about being a slave of Jesus Christ. But there are people today that don't want to be slaves to anybody. They want to be independent, <laughs> make up their own minds, be their own boss. Peter said, look, I'm a slave and the apostle of Jesus Christ. To those who have obtained like precious faith, who understand the truth of God, who understand about the coming kingdom of God. And I'm speaking to people that have been called to understand the truth of God with us by the righteousness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. There's no mention here of a trinity. He's talking about Jesus Christ and God the Father, as Paul did in the beginning of his epistles. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life, now and in the coming kingdom of God, in godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us, by which has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. You have been promised forgiveness of your sins if you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. You have been promised eternal life. You have been promised to become kings and priests and teachers in the coming kingdom and government of God. You've been called to become a royal priesthood, a chosen people, a special people, not just a regular rock, as we heard in the sermonette, but special rocks, very special people. This is what uh, Peter's talking about. Exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, that you can become part of God's family. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. But then Peter makes a list. He says, but there's some things you need to do. There's some things that you need to do. But also for this very reason, giving all diligence, you know, really focus on adding to your faith, 
which you believe, virtue. Virtue is courage. We've got to have the courage. In some cases, to say, no, I can't work next week. I'm going to the feast. No, I can't do that. Because that would cause me to compromise the laws of God. It takes courage to do that. Tell some of your peers at school, no, I won't be going to the prom. <gasps> you won't. I won't be going to Friday night football games. You won't. And they start laughing and pointing fingers at you. It takes a certain amount of courage to stand your ground. Not put anybody down and say, no, I, I don't do those things. I've chosen not to. It takes courage to do that. And to courage... Knowledge. Do you know what you believe? Do you know why you believe it? Can you explain the scriptures? Knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. Yeah, but you don't know how hard it is whenever somebody sticks their tongue out at you, whatever, you know, I just want to belt them. You can't do that. It takes self-control. Yeah, we all lose it once in a while. No, we shouldn't. <laughs> To knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, you don't quit. You don't quit. Even when somebody offends you, or they set a bad example, and they might be in a leadership position, or maybe they're your boss, you don't whine and cry and you know, make snide remarks behind their back. Perseverance, you don't quit. Churchill made the statement, never, never, never quit. Yet we've had people bail out of the church. Well, because they deceived us, or because I made a big offering and they, they wasted the money, or they did this or they did that. We've got to endure to the end. We've got to endure to the end. And to perseverance, godliness... We're asking ourselves periodically, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus handle this particular situation? What guidelines does God give us in the Bible for handling the situation that I'm in? Not how you think about it, not how I think about it, but what does God think about it? And the godliness, brotherly kindness... We're supposed to be, and I think we believe we are, the Philadelphia Church of God. Philadelphia means brotherly love. Do we exude that? Do you? Do I? This is a quality we have to develop, to brotherly kindness, love, which is an unselfish, outgoing Concern where you're thinking about others, not yourself. Again, our tendency is to think about ourselves. What do you, what, how do I feel? What do my emotions tell me? No, it's what does God want us to think? Now, this is important. Verse 8, it says, For if these things are yours, if you develop these qualities and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For the person who lacks these things is short-sighted. You don't see the big picture. You don't understand why it's important to develop these qualities. 
even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent, earnest, to make your calling and election sure. We're not going to just coast into the kingdom. You know, by coming to church and being nice and stuff like that. It says, make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you'll never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We've got to do some things if we hope to achieve the goal of being in the kingdom of God. The point I want to make here as we begin the sermon is that we're not going to gain the kingdom of God just by coming to church and just by praying once in a while and, and just kind of being nice and kind of going along with the crowd that is also <laughs> coming to church. There are some things we've got to do and qualities we've got to develop. Peter is talking about these qualities, some of them. Jesus mentioned several qualities to the young man that came to him. You know, you don't get a degree from college by just coming and sitting in the class. Unfortunately, we have to take exams. We've got to do the assignments. We've got to bear fruit. If you want to become a plumber or electrician or an accountant, you can't just take a few classes and sit there and agree with everything. You've got to sit for some exams. You've got to show some proficiency. You've got to develop certain qualities and abilities. And we have to do the same thing if we want to be in the kingdom of God. What I want to do in the sermon today is talk about seven qualities, seven more qualities that we need to develop. These are things we need to be focusing on if we want to be in the kingdom of God. Again, the young man that came to talk to Jesus Christ, I don't think the kingdom was a real concept to him. Again, I don't know his heart. Maybe one of these days we'll have a chance to talk in the resurrection. But he was excited about something. Wow, being a king and a priest, reigning over the world. That sounds exciting. But see, there, there's a cost that comes along. We've got to qualify for that. We've got to develop certain qualities in order to be given those responsibilities. And we'd be, when he looked at the initial ones, he said, wow, that's hard. But I want to talk about seven qualities. You can title the sermon, Seven Qualities for the Kingdom, or Seven Keys to the Kingdom, Seven Things that We, we Need to Focus On. And I want to cover the sermon in the sense of uh, giving you a quiz. I'm a college professor, so you know, we slip into our old ways. But I want to ask seven questions. We'll do it that way. And the thing is, though, you not only have to know the answers, you have to do <laughs> what the answers talk about. We all have to. So let's go through these, um, hopefully in a, in a... So we're not going to be here all night, but we'll make it by the end of the sermon. The first quality has to do with conversion. You might think, oh, this is old stuff. But think about it for a minute. Are you converted? Are you converted? Really converted? I remember a discussion I was part of years ago as the church was breaking up. And one person made the observation and said, I think we, have a, we had a lot of baptized, unconverted people. 
They were baptized. They knew the answers. But when things got difficult, they bailed out, drifted away. Went back to Presbyterian churches, Methodist churches. Went to Seventh-day Adventist churches because they keep the Sabbath. Went to uh, uh, some of the, um, what's the term I want here, the Jewish groups that um, uh, also believe in Jesus Christ. I mean, it just went off in different directions. I remember talking to one couple we'd been close to, and they found out my wife and I had gone in a certain direction, and I said, well, where are you guys? Oh, we went back to the Presbyterian Church. They have a wonderful music program. What about the truth? The truth of God. Well, they believe in Jesus and Christmas and Easter and Sunday and a whole bunch of other things. The Trinity, the rapture. Yet we forget the scriptures as many will come in my name and deceive many. It will sound good. Are you really converted? I remember when I first went to Ambassador College. I'd been part of the church for two or three years, I think, by that time. But I remember walking around because they were talking about conversion in some of the classes. And I was beginning to wonder, am I? How do I know if I'm converted? Let's talk about that for just a little bit. And why is that important? Matthew chapter 18, <clears throat> first several verses. Jesus underlines the importance of real conversion. You know, Dr. Meredith has written an article in the uh, January, February, Tomorrow's World. And the uh, title of the article is The Danger of a False Conversion. Where you accept Jesus as your Savior, but you don't really repent of anything. You don't really change you're a nice person. And sincerity is not necessarily the issue. Mr. Armstrong used to say over and over and over, he said, you can be sincere and sincerely wrong. You can be sincere and be sincerely wrong. Jesus mentions here in chapter 18 of Matthew, Matthew chapter 18. At that time, his disciples came to Jesus. says, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In other words, how can we be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? See, their focus was very carnal. We want to get the best jobs. Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say unto you, unless you are converted. And the word means to turn around and go in a different direction. Develop different attitudes, different perspectives, different ways of thinking, where you focus on following in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. Unless you are converted and become as little children, where you're trusting in God, where you're teachable, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless you become as a child, where you're trusting God, you believe the Word of God, you don't have this thing where, well, I know what it says, but here's what I think. It can't be that way. You by no means enter the kingdom of God. Therefore, whoever humbles himself or herself, 
becomes teachable. You little kids have these this marvelous expression sometimes. You tell them something and they look up at you with these big eyes. Oh, <laughs> you know, they're, they're listening to what you have to say. They, they want to believe you. And it's only as they get older they get skeptical. Because they begin to realize everything they hear is not true. And some people that want to keep Christmas with their children tell them about Santa Claus, and then the kids get older. Well, you know, you told me about Santa Claus, but I realized he didn't exist. They begin questioning other things that come from the people who promote these fables. And it's disheartening. It's deceptive. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as a little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he receives one of these little ch uh, child like this uh, in my name receives me. So conversion is extremely important. What is conversion? We talked about, you look up the Greek words, it means to turn around and to go in a different direction, to turn with sorrow. God, I'm sorry for doing what I did. Thank you for opening my mind to understand your truth. For Jesus Christ to be willing to come to this earth to give his life on our behalf. To raise up a church, to lead it and guide it. How deeply are you converted? And when we learn the truth, we make a big change in our life. But after that, we need to continue to repent, to make course corrections. And they're usually not real dramatic. When you stop keeping Christmas, start keeping the holy days, you know, start following the biblical health laws, these are major things people notice. And they begin asking, what's the matter with you? But, you know, as we proceed in our Christian life, we still have to make course corrections. They'll be smaller. In many cases, they'll be internal, that nobody else is going to notice. But God will notice. And you will notice. But conversion is a process. It takes time. And that's why God gives us 20, 30, 40, 50 years. If we were just converted and ready to go, why would we need to live beyond baptism? Well, there's things we have to do. There's things that we have to do. There are course corrections that we have to make. So conversion involves course corrections. You can check the verses a little bit later in Acts 2.38. It talks about repent, be baptized. In other words, when you learn God's way of life and you're determined to do it, then you make a commitment. And that's what baptism is all about. You commit to accept the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for your sins. And it says you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, a capacity to understand even more of God's way of life and God's truth, a capacity to begin to develop and exercise the fruits of His Spirit that you can't really fake without God's Spirit. Now, you can be nice to people most of the time, but without God's Spirit, it's not going to be the same. Acts 3.19 talks about repent and be converted. And the words are similar. They both mean to turn around, uh, to go in a different direction, to change your attitude, your thoughts, your behavior. 
And as Jesus said, unless you do those things, unless I do those things, we're not going to be in the kingdom of God. These are things we've got to learn to do. Conversion is a process. Notice in Luke chapter 22, where Christ is talking with Peter. Now, Peter had been with Jesus for quite some time, probably by this time a number of years. He believed Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. He believed that he was the Son of God. But, you know, we're told in Scripture the demons believe that God exists. The demons believe that Jesus is the Messiah. So just because somebody believes those things doesn't mean they're converted. But notice what he says here to Peter, Luke 22 and verse 32. Now Peter here responds almost like the young, the rich man that came to Christ. Peter's, or Paul, excuse me, um, beginning verse 31. The Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you. Satan has wanted to get after you, to get you, to get to you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. What's it mean to have Jesus Christ, the Son of God, pray for you? There's an old saying, it's not what you know, but who you know. (laughs) I want to know Jesus Christ. (laughs) I, I, I want to have him praying for me. As you do. He says, Peter, I prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Other translations say, I prayed for you that you don't lose your faith. And we've had people who have lost their faith. They've seen ministers who used to stand up here and preach, not necessarily here, but somewhere, and then they start preaching new truth. In some cases, people followed them. In other cases, they, they just blew some circuits up here. Oh, how can he do that? And they left the church. Now, have they lost their faith totally? I don't know. We'll have to see. We've got people coming back that have been through those experiences. But Jesus says to Peter, I prayed for you that your faith would not fail, that you don't lose your faith. And when you have returned, the older King James says, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. Peter had things to learn yet. He had some growing to do. And and Jesus knew that. He says, whenever you're converted, whenever you come back, so to speak, because Peter did leave after the crucifixion, He denied, in fact, that's the story here. You read the next several verses. Jesus says, strengthen the faith. But notice Peter's response, verse 33. Lord, I'm ready now. I'm ready to go. Jesus said, Peter, you're going to deny me three times before this is all over. That must have been shocking to Peter. And then he did. But once he did, he realized, I did it. I actually did what he told me I was going to do. And then Peter went fishing. It's all over. Go back to my boat. And then Jesus had to come along. Peter, come on, i got breakfast for you. (laughs) Peter was in the process 
of conversion. It was part of the story, part of the process. So these are things we need to think about. Ask yourself, are you converted, really? Do you want to be converted? What are the benefits of being converted? Receiving God's Spirit? Being in the kingdom of God? See, these are things we're sacrificing for. You're praying to God, God, guide me, lead me, help me repent and grow. Mold me, fashion me. You know, David prayed those things. Wash me off, scrub me off, point me in the right direction. I want to do what you want me to do, God. As a young person, you can ask God to work with you that way, to mold you and fashion you. And again, don't fall for a false conversion that many people have today. Well, they keep the Sabbath. I can go over there. Or just because they talk about Jesus doesn't mean that they have God's Spirit or that they're converted. We've got to keep these things in front of our minds. Jesus said, many will come in my name and deceive many. We're told that Satan has deceived the whole world. There are two billion professing Christians in the world. They're not all true Christians. They're well-meaning, they're sincere, but they're going to have to be converted at some point in time. So that's point number one. Are you converted? Ask yourself, think about that. What fruits do you see when you look in the mirror? And don't justify things. Well, yeah, but... <laughs> no, that doesn't work. That doesn't work. Are you conducting yourself as a Christian? Point number two. Question number two. Are you deeply convicted? Are you deeply convicted about what you believe? And again, keep in mind, you can be deeply convicted and be wrong. <laughs> We've got to be make sure that we're in harmony with the Scriptures. Are you deeply convicted or you're just, are you just drifting along with maybe family, friends, or the crowd that you're part of? It was easy for many young people to be quote-unquote Christians at Ambassador College because everybody in the student body was Christian. If that was the case, when you go back and look at some of the old yearbooks, you can go page after page after page and half of the people weren't in the church 10 or 15 years later. Were they really converted? God knows. But if they were deeply converted, there would be a lot more people here today that went through Ambassador College, including ministers. I think many young fellows learn to speak. But when things got rough, they bailed out or they left the church. It's one thing to be able to talk about the Bible. It's another thing to have it right here, where it's part of you. And the people can't take it away from you because it's there. Jesus said in John 14, verse 6, He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, or the way to eternal life. He didn't say, I, I'm one of the ways. <laughs> I'm part of the truth. He was kind of exclusive, you might say, in that sense. He says, I am the 
the way and the truth and the way of life. What do you believe? Jesus said he was. In Matthew 16, verse 18, he said, I am going to build my church. He didn't say, I'm going to build my churches. <laughs> he said, I'm going to build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. It's going to be around. Do you believe that? Or is the church just kind of this amorphous thing that uh, you know, there's some bits of it here and some bits of it there and so on? It's not what Jesus said. I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell are not going to prevail against it. If you tell people you believe that you belong to God's church, they'll be offended because chances are they may attend a church too. And it might be called the church of God of which there are many today. How many does God have? See, these are things we've got to be convicted about. You know, Paul mentions in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, tell me what it says. Prove all things. Examine everything. Examine what you believe. Prove it and then hold fast to that. And don't compromise. Don't be pressured into something. You know, we had some visitors here a week or so ago from another church of God. And then I saw a bunch of stuff on the internet. Oh, wouldn't it be wonderful if we could have combined services and combined socials and do all these things together? You notice the emphasis was on social things. Let's not talk about what divides us. Let's talk about what unites us. Well, what divides us is basic doctrines. And you can't trivialize some of these doctrines. We're not of the same mind, unfortunately, and of the same judgment. And when you begin to socialize really closely with people that don't believe like you do, something's going to compromise. Now, we can be nice, we can be friendly, we can be loving, but you don't compromise the truth of God. You can't trivialize these things. And even though some people might get offended, you know, these are things that you can't change. Are you convicted about what you believe? As I mentioned in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, Jesus talks about there's a wide way that everybody goes, but there's a narrow way. It's going to be difficult. You know, some of the immigrants who came to this country back in the 17 and 1800s there's a group that came to Ohio and Pennsylvania up there, and they built a little community. Uh, I forget the name, Euphrata, I believe it is. But they actually built the buildings, and the doorways of the buildings were shorter than most everybody, average height, and the doorways were narrow. So it was to remind everybody when they walked through these doors, it was kind of a narrow way. You had to kind of bend over and squeeze through the door. But it was to remind everybody in that community that God's way is a difficult way, a narrow way. You can't just throw open the doors, everybody come, and we'll all have a big family here and have fun and so on. That's not God's way. He wants us to be friendly and be nice, but we've got to hold on to the truth of God. 
Are you convicted deeply that God is real? Ask yourself, is God real to you? Is there a real God? Or is this just a figment of people's imagination? You know, we've got a booklet on that. If you've not done it, please spend some time with that and ask yourself, is this what I believe? Can I believe this? Is the Bible the inspired Word of God? Again, we have a booklet on that. Have you proven to yourself that the Bible is unique? That it is the inspired Word of God? It's not filled with a bunch of fables. It's the truth. You need to do that. Or somebody's going to blow you away sooner or later. If you firmly lay a foundation, nobody's going to be able to shake that foundation. Where is the church of God today? Is it just scattered all over the place? Or did God raise up a church? Is he using that church? Are you part of that church? If you're not, you better be someplace else (laughs) where it is. These are things you need to nail down firmly so that you can be convicted. Notice in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. This is what Jesus was preaching. This is what he was saying. And he didn't mince his words. Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is the Sermon on the Mount. He was speaking at the beginning of his ministry. He was setting a tone for his ministry. Verses 28 and 29. So it was when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his teaching. For he taught them as one having authority. As one having authority. And not as the scribes. Well, you know, God has people scattered all over the place, you know, and he has a little church here and a little church there, and we're all just one big happy family. We just happen to be scattered in different little groups. And, you know, he'll come back one of these days, and we, we, we can just coast into the kingdom. And Jesus didn't say that. He said, unless you do certain things, you're not going to be there. Unless we develop certain qualities, we're not going to be useful to God. We're going to have to understand what brotherly love is and what outgoing concern is. And we might have high positions today in various jobs or responsibilities. But if we don't have love, we're not going to be useful to God. See, these are important things. Are you convicted? That God is real. That the Bible is His Word. That you know where His church is. That you know how you should be living. Let's look at some other things. Do you have a personal relationship with God? Now, you can come to church. You can sing songs. You can fellowship. You can eat the snacks after services and feel part of the group. But do you have a personal relationship with God? And I'm talking as a young person. You don't have to be an old person with gray hair to have a personal relationship with God. Daniel prayed to God. His three friends prayed to God. God, you can deliver us from this fiery furnace, but if you don't, we're not going to compromise. 
They knew who they were talking to. They knew who God, they knew God listened. Do you have a personal relationship with God? In Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> again, part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a model prayer. I grew up as a child. I memorized this, and I said this every night before I went to bed. But it wasn't until I came into the church of God that I was told and taught, this is a model prayer. You don't just recite it. You use it as a model. In Matthew chapter 6, <clears throat> it says, Our Father in heaven. If you've had a difficult relationship with your father, this might be difficult. You know, as, as fathers, we need to set an example of love and patience and firmness and understanding. And if you've had a difficult relationship, this may be, may be difficult. There may be some hurdles to get over. But God is described as our Father. You know, little children, whenever they get in trouble and somebody's chasing them, you know, they'll, they'll come right, Daddy, Daddy, help me! I'll tell a little story on Scott here while he's here. <laughs> it was our first trip to Europe, and we had a night flight coming back from Germany. And I think Scott was about 18 months old at that time, so he was walking, uh, and he was wanting to explore things. And we were walking down the... Uh, a hallway there in this big airport in Frankfurt. And uh, he was running ahead of me, just exploring and all excited. And I saw this floor sweeper coming, but it was around the corner. Had one of these red lights going around and stuff like that, <laughs> making a bunch of noise. He didn't see it coming. So he goes running down to the corner. All of a sudden, this big monster with headlights come around the corner. <laughs> Boy, he turned around, came running back, and grabbed my legs and stuck his head out between my legs. Wow, where is it? <laughs> it was, <laughs> he felt safe because <laughs> he ran to his dad. <laughs> what Jesus is saying is God is our Father. And we can come to Him with issues, with concerns. And I didn't say, straighten up, Scott. You know, be brave. Be a man. <laughs> No, I, I just smiled, you know, because he was, he was hugging somebody that he, he felt safe. You know, that's what fathers are for and mothers are for, to protect and watch over. And that's how God is described in the Scriptures, as our Father. You know, when Jesus was about to die, he said, Father, in prayer, if it's possible, please take this cup and do it a different way. God, and I know we talked about this, but can we, can we discuss this? Can we, can, we, can we talk this over again? He said, no. He said, look, it would be nice if we could do this differently, but we did agree to this. That's why I came. And it's your will, not mine. But he talked with his father. Before he ordained twelve apostles, he prayed all night. God, what do you think about this? Am I seeing the right thing? You know, every week or so I get uh, forms sent in, or I talk with fellows on the phone, regional pastors, and I say, look, I'm thinking about ordaining such and such a person. And my general advice is, why don't you think about it and pray about it and fast about it and see if this is what God wants. And there have been occasions where that happened, 
And within the next uh, several weeks or several months, it becomes very obvious, no, <laughs> that should not occur. Because God makes it obvious. When he's part of the process, you know, if you're interested in a young man or a young woman, or an older man or an older woman, you might do the same thing. God, is this what you want for me? Is this the direction I need to go? And then be receptive and listen. You make God part of the plan. Part of the plan. God is our Father. He cares for us. So do you have a relationship with God? If you don't, strive to develop one. Spend some time on your knees regularly every morning. You know, there used to be a chapstick commercial on television. Don't go out without it. You don't go out without praying to God in the morning. Don't go to bed before you pray to God. Take some time during the day to pray to God. You develop that relationship. Spend some time reading the Bible and let these thoughts go through your mind. You know, very sobering scripture in Matthew chapter 7. Again, Sermon on the Mount, basic things. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. Not everybody that uses my name. Not everybody that uses my name. Not everybody even that prays to me. But he or she who does the will of my Father in heaven. And Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Which includes the Sabbath, includes the holy days. Among many other things. Not everyone that says to me or uses my name will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. Many will say to me in that day, that is when Christ returns, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, we've preached in your name, we've cast out demons in your name, done wonderful things in your name? He didn't say, well, you didn't do anything. He didn't say that at all. He says, then I will declare unto you, I never knew you. We weren't on the same wavelength. You were doing your thing, and I asked you to do something else. You who practice lawlessness, you've thrown away the book, really. Well, you might read the book, but I said, remember the Sabbath day. You don't. I said, the holy days were forever, and you stopped. I said, don't eat certain things, but you do. Brethren, strive to develop, whatever age you are, a personal relationship with God. Where you talk with God as your Father, you thank Him for the blessings you've been given, for the opportunities, for the truth. Let's move on. Second thing, or a fourth thing we need to develop is character. And you might ask yourself, what is your character like? A thumbnail description of character is who you are when nobody's looking. It's who you are when nobody's looking. It's what you think about when people can't see your thoughts. The godly character is described in the Bible in numerous places. Dr. Meredith likes the scripture, Galatians 2.20. By letting Christ live his life over within you. 
So if we ask these questions, would Jesus do what I'm about to do this evening? Would Jesus watch what I'm going to watch this afternoon or tonight? Would Jesus say what I just said? Very sobering. Very enlightening if we think that way. In Galatians chapter 5, let's look at that, because this is an insight into character. The kind of character that God wants to see in us, and the kind of character that God doesn't want to see in us. In fact, if we put this in an even bigger picture, he's describing here the kind of character we're going to need to function as kings and priests in the coming kingdom of God. And if we don't develop those qualities of character, but we exhibit other qualities of character, we will not be in the kingdom of God. That's pretty much what we're told here in Galatians chapter 5. Verse 18, For as many as are led by the Spirit of God are not under the law, or under the penalty of the law, is what it's talking about. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, uh, moral things here, idolatry, sorcery, hatred. I can't stand that person, even though they may be sitting here in the room, and so are you. <laughs> can't do that and proclaim to be Christians. Contentions, arguments, jealousies, outbursts of wrath. <laughs> we explode over this or that. Wrath, uh, selfish ambitions, dissensions and heresies, skip down through here, drunkenness, murders, whatever. It says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And yet there are many people who assume they're going to be in the kingdom, even though these character traits are quite evident. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, this unselfish, outgoing concern where you literally care for people. Joy, you're positive. You know, the, the man in the story we we're reading about, he couldn't afford a cell phone, didn't want to spend money for it, but he clipped his garage door opener. <laughs> but he was a joyful person. You know, a lot of people, as we get older, we mellow. And we realize, you know, it's just not that important anymore. Whereas as a younger person, well, I've got to have this, or I've got to do that, or the world's coming to an end because I didn't get a certain promotion or whatever, and begin to realize as you're older, you know, <laughs> it really doesn't matter in the long run. It's how you do the job. It's how you relate to people as opposed to what position you wind up in. Peace, are you a peacemaker? Or do things go to pieces when you walk into the room? Patience? Are you patient with other people? Are you patient with yourself sometimes? Are you kind? Are you good? Are you faithful, gentle, self-control? Verse 24, those who are Christ have crucified the flesh. They've put away the works of the flesh. And they are led by God's Spirit. Character is extremely important. And we need to review these things. I think it's good every Friday, not every Friday, maybe as many Friday nights as you remember, to sit down and just let these things run through your mind. Am I moving in this direction? How did I do the past week? 
Number five, compassion. Are you a compassion? I didn't say an emotional person. I said, are you a compassionate person? Where you care about other people. Oftentimes we think about ourselves. I don't like this. I don't like that. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. We need to be thinking about other people. What would they like to do? How do they feel as opposed to how do you feel? John 3.16, it's a scripture that many people trivialize, which says, For God so loved the world, human beings, His creation, that He gave His life, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish. God doesn't want anyone to perish or to fail. God cares that much. A definition that I've used a number of times on on leadership. A leader is a person who cares enough to want to change circumstances that are hurting other people. They're compassionate people. God is going to need a group of leaders in the coming kingdom of God that are compassionate, that care for others, that want to change the world in a positive way. He needs those people. He's preparing those people. You can be one of those people. You know, if you develop the qualities that he can use. Number six is competence. Are you a competent person? Can you explain the scriptures? Can you apply the scriptures in a right way? Let's turn to uh, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 15. Start verse 14. It says, Remind them of these things. Paul is talking to Timothy to advise the congregations he's working with. Remind them of these things before the Lord, not to strive about words that have no profit to the ruin of the hearers. Don't get involved in circular arguments that just go round and round and round that waste time. Be diligent. The older King James says study. We could say study diligently to present yourself approved unto God, a worker who need not be ashamed, rightly dividing, correctly explaining, properly understanding the word of truth. And avoid profane and idle babblings, for they increase to more ungodliness. He says study. Spend some time. Prepare to teach. Prepare to rule. Prepare to solve problems. Ask God to mold you and fashion you and point you in the right direction. We've got to be, we've got to be competent. Jesus Christ is not going to go back and say, well, you know, I know you made a good effort, but you bumbled everything you did, but I'm going to make you a king and a priest over a city. I don't think it's going to happen. We're going to have to be faithful. We're going to have to understand biblical principles, how to apply them. And I think God will put us in a job that we're capable of doing. And then as we grow, give us even bigger responsibilities. It's just the way things work. But competence is extremely important. Take advantage of the opportunities that you have today for education, for the living university classes, for the literature that we produce. You know, there are places in the world where people can't 
order and sit down and read what we produce. They can't express their beliefs openly. They'll get thrown in jail. They'll be persecuted. That's not happening in America, at least right now. It may, one of these days. But take advantage of these opportunities to learn and grow. Final point, final question. Do you have God's perspective? Do you see the same big picture that God sees? You know, again, I've used this quote that came in in an email some time ago. This person wrote in and said, I am so tired of hearing Dr. Mary to talk about the big picture all the time. Well, that's what it's all about. The kingdom of God. The coming government of God. Developing the character of Jesus Christ. Turn to Proverbs chapter 29. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 18. Now, these are themes that run through the Bible, Old Testament as well as New Testament. Proverbs 29, verse 18. It says, where there is no revelation, or the older King James says, where there's no vision, no revealed vision, we could say, where there's no understanding of the purpose of life and the plan of God, people cast off restraint. They do their own thing. They go off in different directions. But happy is the person that keeps the laws of God. Where there's no vision, no revelation, where people don't understand the plan of God, people go off in all kinds of different directions. They put their ladders against all kinds of walls. And they climb over here and they climb over there. They get up to the top and they realize, nothing up here. But I thought there was. They said there was. Without a revelation, without understanding the plan of God, we can spin our wheels and spend our lives doing all kinds of things and come to the end and realize, you know, there, there's, there's nothing really here. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 25 and 26. It talks about there, don't get sidetracked. Stay focused. Stay, keep your life focused in a, in a right direction. And don't get sidetracked. Ponder the path of your feet. How can I be in the kingdom of God? That's what the young man was asking when he came to Christ. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life to be in the kingdom of God? And Jesus said, look, sell what you have, give to the poor. You'll be a generous person. Pick up your cross. It's not going to be easy. Follow me. Keep my commandments. Peter outlined some of the same things. Add to your faith. Your knowledge, self-control, godliness, brotherly kindness. We've covered seven points here. These are practical things, brethren, that we can do to be in the kingdom of God. Jesus also said, just adding a few other things here in Matthew 24, verse 13. He said, he that endures to the end will be saved. The person that doesn't bail out, that doesn't quit, will be saved. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 11, it says, Don't let any man take your crown. They can take your crown by deceiving you, and they can take your crown by hurting you. I saw an article recently that said many people that leave their churches leave because they've been hurt for some reason. 
but then they use that as an excuse to leave. See, if you have built a foundation that's firm, you know that God is real, you know the Bible is His Word, you know where His truth is, you know where His church is, people can't take your crown from you. I've used this example before when I was fired down at Big Sandy for giving a sermon. The two young guys that uh, were younger than I was fired me. I played basketball with one, and the other kid had been, other man, had been one of my students. As I walked out the door, the guy I played basketball with poked him in the rib and smiled and walked out. And what I was thinking was, you can't have my crown. You can't have it. I'm not going to give it to you. <laughs> And I wasn't leaving the church because they proceeded to get themselves in a position of responsibility. Yeah, they're going to have to answer for their actions. I'm going to have to answer for mine. But don't let anybody take your crown. Don't let any circumstance knock your crown off your head. When the young man came to Christ, he said, What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? What do I have to do to be in the kingdom of God? Jesus outlined some steps. Peter outlined some steps. We've talked about those some more steps this afternoon. Brethren, you and I have been called, as Peter said, to inherit precious promises. Extremely precious promises. Whether you're a younger person or an older person, strive to get that vision. Strive to get that vision of the kingdom of God. Do you want to change the world? Do you want to teach the world God's way of life? Do you want to improve the conditions for everyone living in the world? Do you want to help the, the earth blossom like a rose, restore the environment? These are the opportunities for anyone that God calls that sees the big picture. Brethren, strive to maintain that perspective of God. Develop the qualities of character that God is going to need. And we can be in the kingdom of God together forever.